Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 19 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 9th of June. And Leon, this week we're talking to Stuart Mills of CenturyLink. That's right. Stuart Mills is a regional sales director of CenturyLink. And he's going to be talking us all about high-speed internet, phone and TV services to homes as well well as large and small businesses. Very interesting topic right now with the NBN not performing as people expected and a lot of people nervous about that. And it's very much about the future. Indeed it is. And then we've got uh, Nicholas Groen. Talking to us all about strategy. Bit of futurology and some very interesting ideas. All right, now let's listen to Stuart Mills. Stuart Mills is the uh, Managing Director in Australia of CenturyLink, which is a global communications, hosting and cloud services company, uh, handles everything from big data down to small business services. And Stuart is talking, going to talk to us about white labeling, which is an interesting concept because cloud these days is everything in business. So welcome, Stuart. Uh, Could you start by telling us what you mean by white labeling? If we look at the, the business IT market in Australia, there are literally hundreds of medium-sized uh, IT integration organizations, small managed service providers that service you know, the 10,000 or so small business customers in this country. And they've been with them for many, many years, some of them you know, more, than, more than a decade, having very long relationships. What's happening, of course, with the move from let's call it on-prem, that these medium-sized integrators and, and managed service providers are finding some of their customers are deciding to move away from them and move into the global hyperscale cloud, such as those provided by um, Amazon, Azure, SoftLayer, and, and CenturyLink, in fact. Now, that, that isn't great news if you're a, a, a middle-sized MSP. Um, you don't want to lose workloads from your customers' environments, and you certainly don't want to lose the services that are the high-margin um, sales you make around that. Now, at the moment, if you aren't a mid-sized MSP and you want to play in public cloud, you don't have much of a choice. The hyperscale vendors do offer partner programs, but they tend to be very low margin for the, the reseller. And they maintain the model where it's actually the hyperscale cloud vendor that bills the customer and therefore has the relationship commercially with them. Now that's a big change for the multi, uh, sorry, for the, for the managed service providers where they are the ones who traditionally had that relationship with the customer. So it's a threat to their business. They don't make much money out of it. And yet, how can you stop it? This is a giant freight train rolling across the country rolling across the world. Um, If you look at some of the studies um, around what sort of market size this will be, uh, so cloud infrastructure as a service in Australia um, is going from about $700 million a year in 2016 up to $2 billion in 2020. So we're looking at a tripling of the size of the market. So there is no doubt that the end user community is going in that direction. Problem is, uh, for an MSP, how do you compete with the hyperscale cloud vendors? So what CenturyLink are doing in Australia is saying, well, despite the fact that we are a global cloud IaaS um, partner, 
we are not going to go direct in this country and we're going to offer our technology through the resellers and the IT businesses in this country. And the concept of white labeling says um, actually our portal and the services that it offers and the prices that it shows can be made to look like the local uh, MSP's own business, their own logos, their own colors, their own prices, and many other features. And that's a very, very different approach to the other hyperscale cloud vendors. So basically this is allowing, I guess it was the basis of online business, is that a small company can look like a big company and then cloud comes in and this is still possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's right. Um, this, unless you are a global hyperscale vendor for cloud, there's no possible way that you can compete on a level playing field. So what our white labeling services do is give these local integrators the power of a global hyperscale cloud, but without them having to spend a cent in resourcing that themselves or investing in it or operating that cloud. So even small, you know, we have some companies that two or three people, they're just consulting firms. They are able to offer their customers uh, CenturyLink Cloud branded under their own company name um, without having to put down a cent of capital. Would that uh, change from company to company depending on size or is it all the same? So what do you think, what do you mean what would change? Well, would, the, would their offer be changing depending on their size uh, in uh, their offering? The integrator size? Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, some of the some of our partners are choosing to put their own brands out there, fully white labeled, but some are choosing to have it co-branded where CenturyLink is highly visible as a way of demonstrating the credibility of the product. And some others, in fact, uh, particularly these consulting firms, uh, they're just more interested in um, offering the customer service under the CenturyLink brand. So. There's, there's actually different ways of presenting the product to your end user base, depending on how you want to do it as your business. So how, do, how does pricing of this work? I mean, running a cloud uh, portal is pretty expensive usually. Well, that's right. I mean, running the cloud is expensive. So uh, the portal is, is just the way the clients see, see the cloud and operate the cloud. Uh, so what, what we do is, because we offer variable pricing, is we can say, to a partner of ours, look, you can just do a straight resell of the cloud and um, you collect a margin there and you can sell it, let's call it recommended retail price, the price that's on the web that everyone can see. But alternatively, you can bundle up managed services, security services, migration services, implementation services, and, and other products in your uh, portfolio and, in, and include those in a different price that you offer the customer. You know, for example, you could add 10% to the retail prices and say that that's a managed cloud service and, and offer help desk services and deployment services for the customer. And they can even do that on a customer by customer basis. So they can have very large accounts where they might offer a, a better discount than their small accounts. So none of these things are able to be done uh, through the other hyperscale cloud vendors. And that's what makes this um, a really different approach in Australia. So now the, these uh, clients of yours, so to speak, are offering a cloud mm. service which is way beyond their, their personal scale. Does that mm. include, are you offering then uh, access to big data processing as well as this sort of thing or is it a separate deal? 
Yeah, um, part of our cloud portfolio is what we call big data as a service. Now, traditionally, uh, processing of big data algorithms and analysis takes vast amounts of computing power. And you know, up until recently, the traditional model was companies would literally go out and buy that computing power and put it in their own data centers and only use it intermittently, which is not a great uh, return on investment for them. So we've partnered with Cloudera uh, in Australia and in fact globally to offer big data as a service where customers can rent our cloud infrastructure for just as long as they need to run the, the analysis. So that could be a day, a week, a month, and then give it back to us and stop paying. Then there's the question where that data is stored. Um, data center, does yep. CenturyLink run its own data centers? Yes, we've got data centers in Australia. So all of our customers' information that's kept in the cloud is kept in Australia. We don't have any algorithms that you know move information around the world without telling customers about it. Um, the only way a customer could move their information out of Australia is to manually make that shift themselves through the cloud portal and open that on a different uh, availability zone. What's All of our backups are also kept in Australia. What sort of growth are you looking at? Well, the, you know, the growth that we're seeing uh, in the market in general is that kind of three times by 2020. We have many, many partners signed up now who recognize that if they're going to stay in business literally in the next five years, they must provide a consumption-based cloud model. And the partners who signed up with us recognize that they can't possibly do that themselves at scale and continue to offer features and continue to offer prices that fall, you know, on a, on a quarterly basis, which is a feature of the cloud world. So we're seeing good take up. Um, we're starting to see more and more customers move workloads into the consumption model, particularly the back office workloads. That's really where CenturyLink is different again. Our cloud has been built for business. It's been built to be high availability out of the box. The partners we're signing up tend to deal more with the back office IT environments rather than digital agencies who might do web, web development. And one of the benefits would be that you're offering total security, aren't you, for their data, their information and uh, access? Yeah, security is just part of the the value of, the, of being in a public cloud. It's often a discussion point, is public cloud secure? Um, and the best way to think about it is, well, a company like CenturyLink, which is a $16 billion business, 43,000 staff and hundreds and hundreds of people working in our cloud businesses, we, we can afford to invest at a much higher level around security, for example, than an individual local managed service provider could or indeed the end, the end user client does. So, for example, we run you know, very, very advanced DDoS uh, protection services on all our clouds all around the world for no extra charge. That's just automatically included in the cloud as you become a customer of the cloud. Stuart Mills, thank you very much for your time. That's fascinating. And obviously, this is going to get bigger and bigger as time goes on. It certainly will. And we're, uh, we're hoping to, to help everyone get there. Thanks, Stuart. That's great. Thanks, everyone. Speed on the Internet. There are parts of the world that have gigabit speed, and uh, I don't know what the total opposite of gigabit is, but that's what we've got. It can be a lot faster here. Well, while we mourn that, let's listen to uh, Nicholas Gruen. Nick Gruen, we've talked in the past about uh, strategy, and uh, you have some views about what companies should do to actually get strategies working. Uh, I mean, one common practice uh, might be off-site and away days. I mean, what's your view about that? Yeah, well... <laughs> 
I've been known to feign death to avoid away days. I don't know whether the dislike of them is as widely shared among the workforces as as, um, it is from some of the people I know. But I've found those, I mean, almost without exception, I've found those things excruciating and useless. Of course, that doesn't, I mean, it's silly to say that it mightn't be useful to go away and try and, you know, try to forget about day-to-day things. But the way those things are run in every experience I've ever had is that they tend to start, they imagine they can start with a clean sheet of paper and they're run in a way which is very poorly thought through, but at the same time seems the absolute essence of common sense. And so what they very typically do is they begin with some kind of discussion about some what I call an apex statement, which is either a mission statement or a vision statement, um, which we've talked about before, or a or uh, where do we want to be in five years' time or 10 years' time, or what does success look like? And that sounds tremendously commonsensical. The problem is I've never experienced a situation where it doesn't end up in a platitude. We want to be the best, whatever we are, you know, and then you pick whether it's the suburb or the state or the country or the world. And that doesn't tell you anything. It's a, a wish. And it also misunderstands what strategy is. Strategy is not uh, typically um, – typically, we don't have a map of the future. We, we, this idea that you agree where you're going to go and then you go there is based on a kind of very simple idea that, you know, we're a commander of a ship or a, or a platoon in the army and we've got an objective and we're moving across the landscape from here to there and we have to work out how to do it. The problem with that is that you are in a competitive landscape, and I'd also extend this to the public service, although I'd put it in a different way, but you are, you're just one organisation, and the your question is, how do you make yourself the most useful uh, or the most profitable or something like that as an organisation? And once you do that, once you ask that question, it's not clear whether what your goal should be because your goal should be arrived at in careful consideration of what your assets are, you know, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what the opportunities and threats are to go through one little formula. And and so the whole process of strategy needs to come out of some kind of dialectical process of considering those kinds of things and where you're going. Uh, and that rarely happens at these away days. Now, I mean, these away days they sort of seem to actually go for, from what you're saying, is lowest common denominator ideas. Yeah, that's right. I've been writing quite a bit about strategy and getting some quite good reactions to the stuff that I've written. And I wrote a piece called Against Strategy, which we talked about in our last session. And I've followed that up because that confused some people because they sort of thought that I really was saying we shouldn't have a strategy, which is ridiculous. What I was saying, what, what I was against was the way we think of strategy and the way we do strategy. And I've followed that up with a hopefully <laughs> more positive, but all also more programmatic article, which is actually being published today in the Mandarin. uh, And um, it's called Five Ways to Tell if You're Really Doing Strategy. So if you buy into my critique, then what should strategy look like? I've listed, uh, and I think a good 
sort of menu for taking us through the ways I think we should do strategy is to take us through those that list of things that uh, strategy should be. And the very first one responds to your question. And I think the first thing that strategy needs to be, the most important thing that strategy needs to be, in a single word, summarizing what I was saying before about ends and means and a dialectical process, strategy needs to be critical. And by critical, I don't mean negative or positive. I mean critical like a theater critic or something like that. It needs to be thoughtful, critical reflection on where we are, what the possibilities are, what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. And then as ideas come up for in answer to those questions, we also then need to critically assess those answers. So out of a, cri- a process of, of critical discussion, we end up essentially with a strategy. We end up with the best we can manage given what anyone says and then discussing its merits and how strongly, what, what you know, what, whether this is a good idea or not. So what are the other four? So let me just elaborate on the the critical thing is that and and then critical i think is gets down to two categories critical imagination actually showing some imagination about responding to the state we're in and then critical evaluation obviously the next one and i think this is absolutely critical you could say that it's kind of comes under the heading of critical itself which is meritocratic what happens in a strategy retreat almost invariably is that you will sometimes be told at the beginning of these things that we're going to put all um, hierarchical considerations behind us and we're really going to consider things just on their merits. Well, usually that it's a nice thing to say, but it doesn't happen. If we're going to do strategy well, strategy needs to be meritocratic. Let me digress for a second and think about this amazing new, these amazing new phenomena like open source software and Wikipedia. Everybody thinks peer production or the production of the encyclopedia on Wikipedia, that what's really terrific about it is how open it is, how anyone can contribute. But a moment's thought leads you to understand that that openness, of course, before we had Wikipedia, no one would have predicted that that sort of openness would work. And it was really just an experiment on an afternoon that led to Wikipedia, where they opened up this expert encyclopedia to public participation. The reason Wikipedia works, the real secret source, is that there's a new kind of meritocracy on Wikipedia. It turns out that the way they've set Wikipedia up and the fact that there is a neutral point of view, the fact that we may not be able to agree on whether George Bush was a good president or not, but we can agree on what date he was born and what party he was in and what policies he pursued and so on. That is enough to create this new meritocracy. And once you've got that meritocracy, opening opening it up to the world is a fantastically powerful thing to do. So applying that to strategy, do we have a meritocracy at our retreat? Do we have a meritocracy of ideas in our organization? Let me tell you, it's extremely unlikely because hierarchies get in the way of those things. So we need to be aware of how difficult it is. And and then we need to try and come up with, if you like, quite countercultural strategies within our organization to try to promote. I think of this as essentially an ethical exercise. 
to try to promote meritocracy in an organization, really have ideas discussed on their merits, not on the importance of the people discussing them, is a a real countercultural journey. I guess it needs to be led from the top. And if people know that the people at the top are not hugely status conscious, but are merit conscious, then maybe that's a that's a good start. One way to do that would be to have online discussion. Uh, indeed, indeed. And that's another thing that I would say, which is that, and we'll get onto that with a, well, I mean, I might talk about it now. I uh, My principle there is that strategic planning or strategic thinking needs to be systematic. So I don't want to sell to anyone any sort of here, do it my way. You know, you go on an away day and then you have a 10-week process of sifting through the the outcome. That that to me, uh, so I'm not trying to sell a system, but obviously you need to have a system. And the other thing about that system is that online discussion is a useful thing, but preparation and, and, and a fairly continual cycle of discussion and winnowing down and trying to encourage ideas to bubble up and then to bubble them back down as it were or, or sift through them on their merits and with critical discussion. That to me is the essence of, an, of, of the systematic backbone that needs to go into strategic planning. That's fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much, Nicholas Green. All right. Thanks, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think he raises some really interesting scenarios about how companies and organizations should go about strategy planning. And uh, let's face it, uh, companies and organizations really are stuck on this. You know, I I can think of all the weekends away and uh, sessions they have that come to nothing. Well, yeah, that's true. It doesn't seem to be, I think a lot of people just don't have a plan at all. They keep on doing what they've been doing for decades. You can't do that in today's world. Oh, okay. Now, the news, Leon, it's been a vigorous week. Well, Gary, despite uncertainty about monetary policy and the rise of protectionism, the World Bank has stuck to its outlook for the global economy and it's projected it will grow by 2.7% this year and 2.9% the next. And it's forecasting US economy growing at 2.1% this year, up from 1.6% in 2016. And the 19-country Eurozone expanding 1.7%, down slightly from 1.8%. Japan is expected to grow at 1.5%. That's its fastest pace since 2013 and up from 1% last year. China's slowdown will continue from 6.7% growth last year to 6.5% in 2017 to 6.3% in 2018. And this is the same as it forecasts in January. It forecasts world trade to grow 4% in 2017, the fastest in three years. At the same time, however, it said the global economy faces risks of a fragile recovery with unexpected changes in monetary, trade or other policies in major economies, as well as financial sector uncertainty and geopolitical turmoil. Political outlook doesn't seem to be getting any better. You've got Trump, you've got Jeremy Corbyn, you've got the Middle East. I mean, we've got more troubles than a dog's got fleas. That's right. There's a whole lot of geopolitical issues now weighing on markets. Now, oil prices have slipped after Saudi Arabia and other countries cut ties with Qatar, raising concerns about whether the OPEC deal to cut oil production and boost oil prices will succeed. With Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates closing 
transport links with top liquefied natural gas and condensate shipper Qatar, accusing it of supporting extremism and undermining regional stability. Brent crude has fallen 50 cents or 1% to $49.45 a barrel. Qatar's crude output is one of OPEC's smallest at 600,000 barrels per day. But analysts say the tensions within the OPEC following the Qatar rift could weaken the deal. All of this has added to doubts about the OPEC deal with surging US oil production. And Brent futures have fallen 9% since May the 25th when OPEC decided to extend the production cuts into 2018, which means the market is not confident of this OPEC deal holding together. There's a crack in Arab solidarity, isn't and that can be dangerous. Now to Australia and Australia's GDP, a combination of bad weather, falling exports and contracting investment in home building has slowed Australia's growth down to 0.3%. That's one third of 1%, Gary. Not brilliant. No. This puts Australia's GDP at 1%. That's the slowest pace since the global financial crisis in 2009. Now, on the plus side, it means Australia has set the world record for being a recession-free economy, enjoying 26 years of continuous growth, boosted, no doubt, by our population increases, I think. Yeah, a lot. Figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, yesterday showed exports of goods and services falling 1.6% after six consecutive quarters of growth and dwelling investment falling 4.4% in the March quarter, coming in at 2.5% over the year. And with tight pressure on household incomes, households were also saving less. Household saving ratios has come in at 4.7% for the March quarter, uh, down from 5.1% recorded last quarter. And on the other hand, household consumption's increased 0.5% in the March quarter. But Gary, economists are saying it's going to get worse in the next quarter because of the impact of Cyclone Debbie. It's not looking good. And then you've got the threat of the housing bubble hanging over it all. Now, on the plus side, Australia's construction industry has expanded at its fastest rate in almost three years for the fourth consecutive month. According to the Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association, Australian Performance of Construction Index. The index rose 4.8 points to 56.7. That's 5.4 points above the level of the previous month, which is good. And this is its fastest pace of growth since September 2014. Now, of course, any figure above 50 points to expansion. And the growth was driven by stronger activity conditions in apartment building and engineering constructions linked to the rollout of big-ticket transport infrastructure projects. But at the same time, people are saying there's a glut of apartments and a lot of them are empty. Now, the ANZ says housing price growth has peaked, is set to fall. A report from ANZ Senior economist Daniel Gradwell and Joe Masters says property prices around the country will rise by 4.4% this year before falling to a more manageable 1.9% in 2018. And they say price growth will slow sharply due to a combination of policy changes and macro prudential regulations. Also, the RBA has left interest rates on hold at 1.5% as widely expected by markets and economists. The cash rate has remained steady since August 2015. In his statement, RBA Governor Philip Lowe indicated that house price growth seemed to ease, but low wages growth was constraining household spending, and he indicated the RBA was keeping a close eye on the impact of low wages growth was having on the economy. The house, the RBA was also maintaining its caution about household debt. Now, a number of economists, including our own uh, Shane Oliver, is tipping the RBA will 
cut interest rates before the end of the year. That's a pretty wild thought, isn't it? That'll hold the housing prices pretty much where they are now. That's right. Now, the Australian services sector has continued to expand, but at a slower pace, dropping 1.5 points to 51.5 in May, according to the Australian Industry Group Australian Performance of Services Index. While this is the eighth month of expansion for the sector, any figure above 50 points of growth, anything below shows contraction. Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Officer Innes Willocks said fading economic conditions might be driving the fall. The index showed sales increased, but at a slower pace in April at 52.5 points. New orders dropped to 52.8 points, while the property and business services continued to grow strongly in May at 56.8 points, and the hospitality sector also continued to expand. The bad news was in finance, retail, trade, health and community services and communication services. They shrank at similar rates to the previous month, while personal and recreational services fell by 3.4 points to 43.9 in May, indicating a faster rate of contraction. Company profits posted another strong increase in the March quarter, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, rising 6% following the 20%, 20% rise in the fourth quarter. Uh, again, much of the increase was due to the mining sector, where profits rose 13% on the back of rising commodity prices. That said, further improvement in non-mining profits, up 2.4%, is encouraging. And on an annual basis, non-mining profits are up 16.8%. That's the strongest growth since 2007, and that's good. That is very good. On, on a rather bleak picture, that's very good. Now, on another broader picture, the Fair Work Commission has ruled that full cuts to Sunday penalty rates for fast food, hospitality, retail and pharmacy employees will be phased in over the next few years. Small cuts will be made to rates starting from next month. The rest rest will be phased in over several years to 2020. The landmark decisions will see penalty rates cut in three annual instalments from the 1st of July 2017 for workers under the Fast Food and Hospitality Awards and casual workers under the Retail Awards and in four annual instalments from the 1st of July 2017 2017 for workers under the pharmacy award and for full-time and part-time workers under the retail work. It will reduce Sunday penalty rates for fast food and hospitality workers by 5% this year, then 10% in 2018 and 19, and that will bring their final rate down to 125% and 150%, down from 175%. Fast food industry rates will drop from 150% to 125% by 2020. Sunday pay, pharmacy or retail workers will be cut by 5% this year and a further 15% every year until 2020 and that will reduce their Sunday double time to 150%. Now the Commission has rejected lobbying from Labor, the ACTU and United Voice not to reduce Sunday penalty rates but the decision upset the Australian Retail Association which was seeking for cuts to be made over two years and not four. Cutting the rates is supposed to increase uh, employment, probably will a little bit but it'll probably even out because small rises in the wage will take care of the cuts so it'll be no change again for what? Four years, five years. And we're only talking 3 to 4% of the workforce. On uh, corporate news, and Adani chairman Gautam Adani has confirmed its board has given the green light to the company's controversial mine and rail projects in central Queensland. And despite that, though, there are still questions whether Adani will have the funds for the project to go ahead. Mr Adani said the board's final investment decision approval marked the project's what he called official start. Now, environmental finance group Market Forces described Adani's announcement as a PR stunt because with net debt estimated at $2.5 billion, Adani Enterprises yet to raise a single cent 
5% of the $5 billion required to capitalise the project, and it relies on handouts and subsidies from the Commonwealth and Queensland government. Yeah, it was nice of Gautam to turn on the green light, but as Shakespeare once said, it's really something of sound and fury signifying nothing. I think he's attempting a ploy on the Queensland and federal governments that would presumably threaten development of the uh, basin, possibly, but he's heavily debt-ridden. It's unlikely people are going to lend him more money. And uh, comes to the question, should we really give taxpayers money to so uh, fragile a proposal? Well, yes, it's a tale told by an idiot, as you say, and it's putting the frighteners on the Queensland government to uh, give it the royalty holiday and the frighteners on the federal government to extend that $900 million loan for the railway line. It seems to me that the uh, it's a curate's egg, but the whole thing's rotten. Now, embattled milk producer Murray Goldburn has announced a strategic review and has forecast milk prices for the 2018 financial year to be around $5.20 and $5.40 a kilogram of milk solid. And the opening price is $4.70. Now, that compares with Fonterra, which is a forecast price of $5.70 a kilo. So Murray Goldburn, $5.20 and $5.40. Fonterra, $5.70. And the Australian Competition Consumer Commission is actually taking Murray Goldburn to court, alleging it behaved unconscionably and misled farmers on the milk prices they could expect to receive. And the company has also announced a strategic review looking at all aspects of its corporate structure and strategy. That includes its profit-sharing mechanism with farmers. And the firm's capital structure will also be reviewed. Sounds a bit like the CPA. That's right. Exactly, exactly. And finally, Gary, embattled telecom company Vocus Group, which operates the Dodo and iPrimus brands, has confirmed it's received a takeover bid from giant US private equity firm Colbert Kravis Roberts. Vocus told the market KKR had offered to buy the whole company at $3.50 a share, and the value of the proposal would actually be $3.3 because KKR would also take on Vocus's $1.1 billion debt. Now, Vocus says it forms an independent board headed by Chairman David Spence to review the proposal and would update shareholders when it completed its assessment. Now, the reality is Vocus has been identified as a takeover target after two earnings downgrade and the company now expects its full year underlying profit will come in about $50 million lower than previous forecasts. Now, Vocus had been dealing with problems following the rapid expansion that included mergers with Amcom and MT Group with the purchase of NextGen. And of course, I might add that any takeover by KKR will need approval from the Foreign Investment Review Board. I think it shows that the communications industry is consolidating. There are going to be fewer players. They're going to have to be bigger because investment is going to have to increase a lot. That's right. And very solid having a mob like KKR behind you. Lots of money and a lot of expertise as well. That's right. So let's just watch that space. And that's it for this week, Gary. Next week, we've got a fantastic interview with Tim Buckley. He's an analyst at the US-based Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. He's an Australian. He's going to be talking to us all about Adani. And he's a top-level man in that area. I hope you can tune in and catch us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.